This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, for it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured and we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I, I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Eden, that was brilliant. You should have just kept going and uh, <laughs> and see what God's given you. Just brilliantly read. Thank you so much. Uh, nice to see you all. Um, I, I must admit, as I start, my biggest challenge here in preparing this has been how to get everything into 15 minutes. So, uh, in a very un-Paul Morrish-like way, if you want to hear some stuff that I dug around in the Greek, or if you want to hear a very Paul Morrish type of view on the sarcasm in this passage, then feel free just to drop me a message and I'll send you a much longer version of what you're about to hear. But we're going to go and look at uh, what over the past few weeks we've anchored ourselves in, which is 
I think that Paul cares ever so deeply for the first century believers he's writing to here in Corinth and, and doesn't hide away from the fact they've got problems, but he cares enough to confront the existence of those problems. And here what we see is the, the source problem he's tackling is, is one of pride. He doesn't bottle it, but I guess he didn't have to call them out on it. So why did he do that? And I want to put it to you that the reason he did it was because pride keeps you from being all that God wants you to be. Pride keeps you from being all that God wants you to be. It can creep in and rob the church of her power because pride people tend to be judgmental. And Paul is experiencing this personally. The Christians here were ranking their pastors by saying things like, I like Paul, I like Peter, I like Apollos. They were drawing lines in the sand, if you like, and choosing sides and having favourites and being divisive. I guess that's too easy to do, isn't it? And if you've ever felt judged by others or yourself, or if you've ever been looking into your heart and found yourself to be judgmental or crushed, I, I would urge you, please, to hear what God's got to say to you, I think, through Paul today. And maybe to act as a trigger, this would include you or me if we have a tendency to rank ourselves or others or things or even churches. How big is it? How fast is it growing? How much have I got? How is your building? What's really going on in the deep folds of our hearts? Yet all of that is totally offensive to God because he doesn't value that stuff. He values faithfulness. And so we see that Paul, despite being ranked by others, rises above it all, talks truth to it, and takes on an ultimate goal of the church and people like you and me becoming more healthy. I wonder, therefore, what he might have to say to us today. What Paul's teaching us here, I think, is how to see ourselves, because how we see ourselves is where we find our true identity. He starts right at the beginning in verse one, where he says people should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of or, or those entrusted with the mysteries of God. Steward has several different Greek words, but Paul chooses a very specific word here, hyperites. If you look at this picture, this, this word hyperites is a word that describes men seated in the galley of a ship, right at the bottom, their hands hard calloused on the oars, rowing to the cadence of a drum like this. Monotonous, not glamorous, at the very bottom of the ship, smelly, messy. And Paul says, here's the picture for us apostles, which, by the way, is us too. He says, my hands are on the oar. I'm rowing the ship that is God's church in the direction God wants. But it's not, not glamorous. It takes hard work. I'm just a steward. That's my identity. In the Old Testament, the prophets could only give clues about what the birth and life and suffering of Jesus would be like. The pieces of the puzzle were, if you like, on the table but they didn't have a picture on the lid of the box, so it was kind of mysterious. But for us living on this side of the cross, we have the picture on the box and the face is Jesus. So the mystery is solved. Paul says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. That's to say, my entire life, my entire ministry is about shining the light on Jesus and bringing the gospel of Jesus into people's lives so that they can be transformed. So that identity is not a mystery. It calls us out to live well. As he says in verse two, to do that takes one essential attribute, not about our personality, what we have or our charisma, but faithfulness to be totally trustworthy. And he describes it here 
as like the steward who's in charge of his master's possessions. He doesn't own those possessions. God simply asks us to faithfully steward what actually belongs to him. We own nothing, but we're stewards of everything. For the steward, only one person's opinion matters, just one, the master. And that's why Paul, who's experiencing a lot of judgment by humans, says in verse 3, that it only matters what the Lord thinks about me. If you understand and embrace this, it will profoundly change your life. Paul is giving you your, your, your path to your true identity. Identity, I think, is really powerful because identity will get you to do things you will never otherwise do. Identity will get you to do things you will never otherwise do. Every single one of us in life is on a quest to find out, who am I? Who am I? The way in which you answer that question will determine the course of your life and how you live it. Who am I? What is my identity? Our opportunity or our duty as Christians is to show each person in the world that they're acceptable exactly as they are and to model that and live it out in the way we engage with them. This is how you model to someone who they are in Christ. You show them that their worth is not in what other people think of them, but what God thinks of them. And I say the same to each one of us today, to each one of you. You are not what other people think of you. You are what God thinks of you. So your identity will get you to do things that you would otherwise never get to do. So you discover you have gifts and talents and abilities that can be used to bless other people. And I, I point you perhaps to as an example to Moses in Exodus 4, where God says, you, Moses, are going to be my mouthpiece. And Moses' response is this. I, 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 I am slow of speech. Me? Me? And God says, you're the perfect guy, Moses, because through your weakness, people are going to see more of me. They don't say, look at what a great orator Moses is, because he isn't, until God unleashes his power through him. This is why pride is such a killer, because when you're full of yourself, there is no room for God. When you're full of yourself, there is no room for God. Or as the message version of the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. If it's all about you, there is no room for God to fill you and use you. Your identity is so important because it will get you to do things you will never otherwise do. Because he was totally sure of and lived in his God-given identity, Paul cared most about what God alone thought of him. Because he said, I am a steward and there is only one master for me. It becomes a small thing that you humans should judge me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. How freeing is that as a human, that actually how God created you is not to be judged, to be free from the crippling judgment of others and of yourself, but to be judged by God alone. God says you're only answerable to one master. So what's the implication of that? I think Paul sets them out very clearly in verse five. Do not judge. Stop it. Change your attitude. I'll tell you the story of a young couple who moved into a new neighborhood. The next morning over breakfast, the young wife sees the neighbor hanging her clothes out on the line and says to her husband, look at those dirty clothes that ladies hanging on the line. 
someone really needs to teach our neighbor how to clean her clothes. This went on for day after day, the same conversation over breakfast, the young wife constantly pointing out that her neighbor needed to learn how to clean or to change the kind of soap powder she's knew, she was using. She just needs some help. Her husband though was always silent. This went on for a couple of months until one day they were eating breakfast and the wife looked again out of the window and saw that the clothes on the line were completely clean. She said, wow, either she's changed the powder or someone finally taught that woman how to clean her clothes. Her husband looked up and replied, I woke up early this morning and cleaned our window. We all have dirty windows, don't we? Take that log out of your eye if you're going to examine someone else's junk. Sort your own junk out first. It's not that we don't step in and alongside one another to help each other to grow. That's exactly what Paul was advocating in verse 15, where he says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. In passing, I just ask you, who are your spiritual fathers and mothers? To whom are you accountable? No, it's the way that we do it. I need to clean my own window before I start looking through your window, don't I? Or to use the words of Billy Graham, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. By the way, though, let's not kid ourselves. Everyone else can see pride and arrogance in us. We're usually the last to see it. I know that's true for me. Pride becomes insidious. We're really good at spotting it in others, but really bad at seeing it in ourselves. And that, in part, is where accountability comes in. And Paul speaks exactly to that in verse 7 and says, let's be real. There's no room at all for boasting. You didn't earn your salvation. You're no better than anyone else. Why? Because absolutely everything you have came from God. And Paul piles it on in the verses that follow, sarcastically saying to the Corinthian Christians that they are kings, but we apostles are like, we're like the guys in chains. People make fun of us. They laugh at us. They lead us to our place of execution where they make a sport of us and then we die. And again, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ. Your spiritual self-assessment is favorable. We know are weak. You're the strong ones. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. We are hungry. We have no clothes. We're homeless. We labor hard. Our hands are on those oars. When reviled, though, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we are kind. Doesn't that remind you of the Sermon on the Mount? We have become the scum of the world. I wonder which group he would put you and me in, the Corinthians or the Apostles? Some ancient Greeks in time of plague and disease would take infected men and women out to sea and put them on the edge of the boat and cry out to their gods, be our scum. Then they would push the men and women overboard. In other words, they were saying, let these human sacrifices be our scum. Whatever you have against us, let it fall on them. We proudly are fine. They're the scum. Paul says, Christian, that's how the world views us. Those who are living in the true identity of Christ, we are the scum. And that's just fine. The problem, though, is that the Corinthians would never dream of living a life as hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, laboring, reviled, persecuted, slandered, treated as the scum of the earth. 
These early Christians wanted to avoid being these things at all costs, bringing it right up to date. I'm not sure that they're the only ones. For the past few weeks, I've read this passage every single day, surrounded by books and relative luxury, typing notes on my very nice computer. But I have been deeply challenged, challenged still further by the bomb that went off and shook our homes and the thing in it, some of our very foundations, so hard that some of it broke. It's fragile, but by the world's standards, every one of us lives a luxurious lifestyle. Fact. Most of the world's population lives on less than £1.45 a day. I find it embarrassing. I think I too much want the affirmation and love and respect of the world, even through and because of the things I own. Do you? That affirmation that comes from having stuff, being good at stuff, causes a middle road of a, of a little honour, a little respect, a building of reputation, feeling good and gaining popularity from my society. Yet we still want to remain close to God. To me, that's more and more feeling like an identity crisis. The identity crisis is the reality that the more identi I identify myself with Jesus Christ, the more I see what God has created in me. The more freedom I feel to be what God wants me to be, the more I'm able to function as a steward with joy and to release the pressure and take the mask off because I care very little what Paul, other people think. Even my thoughts about myself don't matter too much. It's what my master thinks because in the end, it is only him who I will have to stand before and be accountable to. And I want to feel and encourage for you and for me that our only aim is to hear one set of words in the end game. Well done, good and faithful servant. There will be a great reversal at that point. The scum of the earth will become God's treasure. So can I challenge you too to live in the light of that day, knowing our true and only identity, knowing your true and only identity. Remember who you are in God. Have security and confidence in that space. Be stripped of pride, stripped of any sense that what we have, what you have, comes from anywhere other than God. Paul sets it out for us in verse 20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So will you live for God alone? Will you put your hands on the oars, steward for God what you have? Align your identity to God's so you can do things you otherwise will never do. Will you empty yourself? Will you sort out your own dirty windows? Will you become the scum of the earth in order to make room for God? I'm just going to ask if you'll just take a minute in silence on your own there and just let God speak into your heart. And then we'll go into our breakout rooms with a question. Spirit of God, we ask you to do as Paul did and come in power, that we just won't be about talk, but we'll adopt your identity in our own lives. Amen.